WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Kim Ironman, founder of Eco Beneficial. Kim, what is Eco Beneficial? Well, good morning, Daryl. Um, thank you for asking that question. Uh, Eco Beneficial is a horticulture communications and consulting company. And beyond those uh, those big words, basically, Eco Beneficial exists to inspire gardeners and homeowners to garden just a little bit differently to make huge positive impacts to our environment. That's really cool because most people, I think, don't know that they can make a big impact just by doing a few little things. Exactly, exactly. Now, you didn't always do this, did you? How did you get into this? Well, um, I used to work on Wall Street many years ago, but um, my life changed quite a bit when uh, 21 years ago I moved to... uh, the suburbs and found myself seven miles north of the New York Botanical Garden. And uh, I was always a nature lover as a child. I was the one that wanted to go on Outward Bound and National Outdoor Leadership School and those kinds of things. So I always had an affinity for nature. But when I started to get into gardening, that was the beginning of the end. And it changed my life and it changed my career. So I am now a certified horticulturist. I'm a master gardener, a master naturalist an accredited organic land care professional and a few other things thrown in. And, I, and in fact, now I teach at the New York Botanical Garden and Brooklyn Botanic Garden, the Native Plant Center, and a few other places. That's wonderful. And you've been all over the country pretty much this spring, haven't you? Uh, I have. In fact, I just got back from the Smoky Wildflower Pilgrimage in Tennessee, which was absolutely fantastic and a wonderful vacation for anybody who loves uh, wildflowers. The pollen I've never high, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. Our, our pollen count one day a couple of weeks ago was over 6,000. Oh, and God. so <laughs> when, when people listen to the show and hear me or some of my guests kind of choking and gagging, that's usually yeah. why, because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty bad. And you've been someplace else that is really special, um, and that's the Colorway Native Plant Conference. Yes, um, I've been going for many years and had the pleasure of speaking there last year. Um, That is one of our granddaddies of native plant conferences in the United States and just full of fascinating folks with um, really interesting information about um, our native plants and why they're so important. So if if folks are interested and they haven't um, gone, um, take a look at the website. And uh, it occurs in July, and it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful conference. You know, I'm surprised that I haven't run into you someplace because we share a lot of, of common interests. We're both in the Garden Writers Association. We're both yep. master gardeners. We're, we've both been to Kulawi. I haven't been able to get to Kulawi for several years because my knees just aren't up to the hills anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was going back in the days when we had to sleep in the unair-conditioned dorms. Um, yeah, so that we, goes. We've made some progress. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I got to sleep in an air-conditioned room, and it was just—it was just so wonderful. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was—I was literally doing a jig on the floor. And for those of you that don't notice, know that um, the Western North Carolina mountains, where Colorado is held, um, are usually quite cool. 
and they since it is up in the mountains, it's very often cool in the evening. But somehow or another, whenever Kaluuya is in progress, it's hotter than Hades. Yeah, it is, and it's such a special place because there's certain um, certain things that grow there that I just don't see either at all here. I'm in I'm in New York, or that just don't do well in in my area. And one of my particular favorites is the sourwood tree. And okay. if any of your listeners are beekeepers or just love honey, sourwood honey must be one of the best honeys on the face of this earth. Um, just a wonderful treat to go down there and uh, see those trees in bloom. And a very, how many very, how many jars of sourwood honey did you bring home with you? <laughs> Quite a few. Fortunately, I was driving. <laughs> but um, but folks sometimes folks think that um, you know honeybees are, are the ones that pollinate um, you know everything and um, just you know, are the ones that we we see on trees like sourwood. But the fact of the matter is, like many of our native plants. Um, sourwood trees are best pollinated by our native bees. Those uh, bell-shaped flowers are very much like blueberry flowers and best pollinated by native bumblebees. So that gives you kind of a, a little taste of where I'm going with eco-beneficial. Well, I'm very glad that you are because we do share so many of the same passions, as do many of our listeners, um, you know, wanting to have a more environmentally friendly landscape and getting rid of the green desert that we call mm-hmm. our lawns yep. and avoiding the pesticides. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have, to be, we have to be healthy for us, too. A lot of people don't realize the damage that is done by the lawn chemicals and things that are spread around. Yes, and um, not only to us, but to wildlife. And one of the um, products that we've used, um, thinking it's benign, uh, glyphosate, you know, the, one of the brand names would be Roundup, um, now has a pretty strong link um, in research to, to cancer in humans. So um, we need to rethink what it is that we're using uh, in our gardens, um, and in, obviously in vegetable gardens, particularly where we're, you know, eating the, um, the bounty from the garden. And really thinking more in terms of bringing in plants that are going to attract beneficial insects and keep the, you know, the population of pest insects down. So these are the kinds of things that I try to share with folks. Um, one thing that I notice in lots of vegetable gardens is there's nothing um, that grows year-round, um, even you know, in temperate climates. There's nothing that's standing year-round um, in colder climates. And rethinking the vegetable garden in terms of bringing in some native perennials to attract beneficial insects, to attract pollinators, and leaving them standing through winter as a a place to provide um, habitat for things like um, mated queen bees that might overwinter and hollow stems, things like lady beetles, which of course we want in our our, uh, vegetable gardens, that also we use pithy stems, leaving seed heads up for for birds that are overwintering. These kinds of small differences that we make um, in in our garden can make huge environmental impacts. I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember maybe 20 years ago having this epiphany when I came home uh, from work one day and saw the finches all over the coneflowers that I had mm-hmm. cleaned up. There were just, there must have been a half a dozen goldfinches, you know, just pecking away like crazy. And I said, aha, you know, I've been doing this all wrong. Because, mm-hmm. of course, we grew up where you have to rake the leaves and get them out of there. And, and in, when we lived in New Jersey, the, the town would have these big leaf sucker machines that would come around. Mm-hmm. So 
every week you'd go down and you'd rake all your leaves down to the street and they'd come and take them away. And now we know that those leaves are where, where the insects are overwintering and where the birds can feed. And we're just learning so much more about it. I was looking this morning. Of course, we don't rake leaves anymore around here. Mm-hmm. And the brown thrashers have been at it and at it and at it, just flipping over leaves and just having a yes. good time. Yeah, and um, if, if listeners have ever read Doug Tallamy, Dr. Doug Tallamy, the fabulous entomologist from the University of Delaware, his book, Bringing Nature Home, we give you some things to think about. Um, about 96% of terrestrial birds, i.e. non-water birds, feed insects to their young, regardless of what their diet is as an adult bird. And um, when we think about these things, we realize that, you know, we really need to encourage, I mean, it sounds a little crazy, but we need to encourage that insect activity because, of course, birds are the best predators of some of our pest insects. It's about nature and balance, not eradicating things that we really need to be thinking more of. And, of course, those leaves, not only are they harboring all sorts of interesting critters, insects, and vertebrates, you know, these things, but um, leaves are nature's mulch and compost. And, um, you know, we foolishly were removing them in uh, the fall, and then what do we do in the spring? We would bring in compost and mulch (laughs) that we'd have to buy. So rethinking these things and appreciating um, what nature is already providing to us is really, really key. You know, talking to you, I feel like you're my sister from another mother or something, because I found you through Doug Tallamy. Um, oh, fantastic. Through, fantastic. And in particular, the, the, the study that he did on native cherries, and you interviewed yes. him for, for one yes. of your shows, and, you know, because that's the kind of stuff that I observe, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And. And then when you talk about, you know, taking away the leaves and then bringing, buying in mulch, do you remember the old story, poem that was going around on the Internet a few years ago about Dumb and Dumber? About, you know, how... Ring a bell. Well, I will have to find that and post it on our, the show Facebook page because I'm sure a lot of people would enjoy that one, too. But basically the premise is, you know, that, that we are, we're stupid humans. We plant the grass, we mow the grass. We fertilize the grass, we cut the grass, we rake right. the leaves, we haul them away, and then mm-hmm. in the spring we go we go and buy mulch. Exactly, exactly. It, it, very well said. <laughs> and people think that it's got to be a big deal or that the, their leaves are going to blow all over the place. But that right. is a little secret. If you chop them up, they stay right where they are. Right. And you can and chop them with your lawnmower. Exactly. Or I've got, we've got a cool thing that bags and blows. And we never use the blower attachment um, because I can't stand the blowers and they kicks up dust mm-hmm. and it's not good for mm-hmm. the environment or, mm-hmm. or your lungs. But we do use the blower vac part. And mm-hmm. that way I can, we, I can collect them where I don't want them and put them in my flower beds and in my exactly. vegetable gardens. I, and I live they break in a, down. It, I live in an area where, of course, everybody around me is still, you know, blowing their leaves, and I look forward, I live at the bottom of a hill, so I look forward to all the leaves that come flying downhill, and I scoop them up and I put them in my plant beds. (laughs) So I've decided that next year what I really should do is collect those leaves, compost them, and resell them to my neighbors in the spring. (laughs) I think that's a great idea, and you can keep some of the compost for yourself. When my husband and I first moved to Atlanta, our yard was really bare. It was pretty much all lawn. There were a couple of trees, but they didn't produce nearly enough leaves for what I wanted. So I would go down into Atlanta on the day before garbage collection 
and I would fill up my car. I had a little hatchback, and I would fill it up <laughs> absolutely up to the brim um, it, with people's leaves. You know, the yard men mm-hmm. would go out, and they would rake yep. them all up and yep. conveniently put them in bags for me. And I would just pick them up and carry them home. That's and great. people just don't realize what a, a bounty leaves are. Yep, nature's and, you know, compost. Yep, yeah, and you think about all the minerals that trees bring up from mm-hmm. the earth, and they use them, they photosynthesize, they take some of the sugars back with them, and then the leaves fall off. And Mother Nature doesn't buy 10, 10, 10. The right, leaves just exactly. stay there, and then they feed the tree the next year. Exactly. And we as humans are just silly for not doing it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, you know, a lot of people think that there's not a whole lot that any one person can do. But well, the, even the just first in this step, first little introduction, they've heard sure. about ten different ideas. Well, the first Some step that been, I always... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, the first step that I encourage people to think about is kind of an obvious one, which is reducing the green desert, you know, our turf lawns. And, you know, we've, we've come a, become accustomed to just having lawn, and we're not even sure why. Um, I was just rereading uh, Michael Pollan's book, Second Nature, and he talks uh, very interestingly and eloquently about the lawn. And, of course, the lawn is a European tradition um, first embraced by folks that had these huge manor houses, and it was, you know, a way to uh, restrain and control nature around the manor house. And we, you know, decided that we would embrace this tradition, bring it um, to America, and then democratize it, and everyone now has a lawn. But um, turf grasses, the grasses that are in, you know, seed mix or sod, the vast majority of them, you know, are not native. They're exotic uh, turf grasses that resent being here. And um, they resent it, and they show it by always being hungry. They need nitrogen. They need, you know, all those nasty fertilizers. They're thirsty. They need lots of watering and drought. And they need attention in terms of cutting if we, you know, don't want them to get overgrown. And, of course, by mowing grasses, what we're doing is we're robbing um, birds and uh, from the uh, seed heads that are really the only valuable resource. So the first We have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back okay. talking more gardening right after this. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is Tracy Pearson at Prissy Tomboy. Are you looking for a way to inspire your pre-teen to teen girl to get outside and play? Listen to the Prissy Tomboy radio show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on America's Web Radio. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. 
the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Kim Ironman, founder of Eco Beneficial. And right before we were talking, um, before the break, we were talking about lawns. And yes, we are going to get to native plants, but and, and native food plants. But people don't understand. When I was in landscape design school, um, my instructor said that people use turf by default. They don't know what else to do. That's all they've ever seen before. So that's the first thing they put down in the lawn. Or they go buy a house, and because of erosion control laws, you know, the builders had to put a lawn in, and maybe two shrubs right by the front door just to pretty it up a little bit. And all that stuff is non-native. And you made a really good point that these grasses are not native, and they don't serve much of a purpose. And what's interesting, you know, um, even though uh, developers might use uh, turf grasses as a way to stop erosion, the, the fact of the matter is that exotic turf grasses has, have really, really shallow roots, and they're really pretty lousy at holding stormwater. Um, and, of course, in these times when we're facing climate change with um, more and more extreme weather events, including huge storms and lots of rainwater, we need to think about erosion and we need to think about capturing water on site. So uh, whereas a turf grass might have uh, roots that are a few inches deep, our native grasses have, some of these plants have uh, root systems that are feet long. And you can imagine how much more stormwater those grasses would take up. So thinking differently is the key. Thinking differently, absolutely. I used to recommend to my design clients that they figure out how much grass they needed, whether it was a little bit of lawn to set off the house, you know, to make the front door look more uh, beautiful, if that was an architectural feature for them, or a place for their kids to play, or for their dogs to run, and then do something else with all the rest of the area. Absolutely. I tell folks, uh, my students, and when I speak in presentations, that only keep the turf grass that you really, truly use. And, and think about that, because most of us don't use our grass very much. So if you've got kids playing, you're using this as a picnic area, you're really using it, fine, keep that, but get, let's get rid of the rest. And that Amen. front lawn. <laughs> and a cruise yes. front, and front and back lawn, both. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that the number of chemicals that they're putting on the lawns. It's not just the fertilizer, which is, um, you know, is, is a little bit more benign, though even that can burn earthworms, um, but the rest of the lawn chemicals that are going out there and are so bad for, for the environment and for their own health. And I rem- I'm old enough to remember when they used to give you clover, a certain amount of oh, clover yeah. seed with yeah. your grass seed because that would provide the nitrogen you needed. Right. And... Um, and, of course, it bloomed in the lawn, and there were always dandelions. And, and I think the only weed that my dad ever declared war on was crabgrass. And Dad had the nicest lawn in the neighborhood because it was pretty, and it was evenly mowed, and we, were, we spent hours out there digging crabgrass when I was a kid because mm-hmm. Dad was a chemist, and he didn't want to use the chemicals that were available. So 
Well, there's so many uh, native alternatives to uh, to turf, and I, you know, we won't get into the scope of that. I have some information on my website if anybody might be interested. It's www.ecobeneficial.com. But um, we um, we have so many things that can be great alternatives. But here's the key: if you're going to replace your lawn, don't think monoculture. Nature doesn't appreciate monocultures. Biodiversity is the healthiest state that we can have in our ecosystems around our house. And we do have ecosystems, even though we may not think in those terms. So think diversely. Now, scientists have uh, determined that biodiverse landscapes, i.e. landscapes with lots of different species of plants, are much more resistant to pests and diseases and the impacts of climate change. So there's a great reason to start planting diversely. So take that grass and think about, okay, how many different species could I uh, put in here and swaths, which um, will still look beautiful but be much more ecological. Now, a lot of people, when you, they hear biodiversity, they know that we're, things are happening with the bees and with the butterflies, particularly the monarch butterfly. But they, I think a lot of people feel helpless to do anything about it. So what, would, what are some things that they can do that are easy to help the right. butterflies and the, okay. and the bees? Well, uh, we just said, you know, reduce or eliminate the lawn. Um, if you really want to help pollinators, you've got to lose the secret sauce that being pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. Absolutely critical because um, pollinators are exquisitely sensitive to uh, pesticides, which we use as a, an overall term for all those sides we, I've just mentioned. Exquisitely sensitive to those things. And um, you really need to think about even organic pesticides because organic does not mean benign. Organic pesticides in some cases can be just as lethal for a bee as um, traditional synthetic ones. So you've, you've got to identify the problem if you have a problem. Um, and sometimes you may think you have a problem, but you actually don't. And I'll give you an example. So you're out one day, you're noticing that your oak leaves have a really strange circular bite in them. And you think, what in the heck is that? That must be something that's a pest and I've got to get rid of it. But the truth of the matter is it might just be a, you know, a leaf cutter bee that's taking just enough material from that leaf that she needs to line her nest for her larva. So knowing whether you've got real damage or not is, is super critical. And this happens in the case, now we, we know about monarch butterflies because they're in such dire trouble. In fact, um, you know, our youngest generation may be the last to ever see a monarch butterfly. That's how severe the situation is. And um, why is that? Well, there are a lot of different reasons. Um, one big reason is that our um, agricultural fields um, in the Midwest, of course, have been using um, massive uh, sprays of um, glyphosate because they're now using GMO seed that is determined to be what's called Roundup Ready. They can tolerate these massive sprays. But what do those sprays do? They kill everything except the crop including all those wildflowers, including milkweeds that monarchs need. So monarch caterpillars, like most butterfly caterpillars, eat plant leaves. They don't eat nectar. They don't eat pollen. They eat plant leaves. So when you go in your garden and you see perhaps some, you know, some quote-unquote damage to leaves, that might just be, for example, a monarch butterfly and a milkweed that's eating what it needs to survive to create the next generation. And uh, we haven't planted for host plants. That's, that's what those plants are called. And we have so many native host plants that support so many um, different butterfly caterpillars. 
At one time, I worked for Extension, and it invariably happened every year that somebody would bring in some dill or some fennel, and it would have worms on them, and they would want to know what to do to kill them, or they would have, worse, brought in, you know, they brought in the dead ones. What are these? And I had to explain to them that those were baby butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and people don't even want to think about it. And then, of course, you know, once you've sprayed it, you're not going to want to eat the stuff anyway. But... Oh, so people can, and, and people know about honeybees, but they don't know about how many hundreds of other different kinds of bees there are around. Well, we have in the United States, well, actually in North America, we have about uh, 4,000 um, species of native bees, not honeybees. Honeybees were brought over in 1622, it's thought, to Jamestown, Virginia, along with things like peacocks and bull mastiffs and other things that the colonists thought they, they would need. Um, honeybees are really valuable to us because they're the only insect to um, make sufficient honey for us to consume in human beings. Um, some other bees uh, make honey, like bumblebees, but they don't make very much, and they live in very small uh, groups. So most of our native bees are solitary. They live singly. And then, of course, there's some that are um, quasi-social that live in small groups. For example, bumblebees, a large group of bumblebees might be 50 individuals. And that's not very many. Um, so our native bees are very valuable pollinators, um, and we have so many different shapes and sizes and tongue lengths, etc., which again speaks to that biodiversity, this, this idea that we have to plant diversely because different bees will be able to access different plants for nectar and pollen. So a big, strong bumblebee um, will be able to force open a flower that... Um, perhaps a smaller bee can't get to. Um, I think of like turtlehead, for example, with those snapdragon-type flowers. A, a bumblebee is strong enough to pry that open, but a little tiny sweat bee wouldn't be able to do that. So think diversely in terms of flower shapes and sizes. Um, what are th- other things can we do? Well, bees are attracted to certain colors. They see differently than we do. They see on a UV spectrum, and they see uh, colors like bright white and yellow and violets and blues. They don't see red. Um, So if we want to plant for pollinators, specifically bees, those are the colors that we want to emphasize. Butterflies see a little differently. They see things like oranges and reds and yellows, um, and they also will go to other flowers as well, but those are the, the preferred flowers. And so planting diversely, again, is super important. And um, if you like blueberries, are you growing any blueberries down there? Of course. There's some fantastic uh, native edible. Well, our native bumblebees are the most efficient pollinators of blueberry plants. Again, it has to do with their body strength. They actually go up into the uh, blueberry flowers, and they vibrate their bodies, a unique behavior that honeybees don't exhibit. They vibrate their bodies they do something called buzz pollination and they're able to release quite a bit of pollen go on to the next flower um and so you know if you want blueberries you would need to attract native bumblebees uh conversely you might be planting an an orchard say you have an apple orchard or another fruit orchard um our orchard mason bees are the best pollinators of those plants um it's been surmised that about 250 250 orchard mason bees can pollinate an acre of apple orchard as effectively as 50,000 honeybees. That's extraordinary. We need to give native bees their due. We need to appreciate these guys that are really working hard for us in our own landscapes. I knew that they were very good at what they do because when we lost all of our our honeybees in the neighborhood, 
uh, my apples were still getting pollinated, and I went out there and discovered who was doing it. Mm-hmm. And it was the little orchard mason bees. Yeah. And then for a while, our population of those started going down, too, and it was really getting scary. You know, something else that people don't think about is the dual nature of some of these native bees, um, even like the carpenter bee that will snag worms and carry them back to their nests and and wasps. And so they're doing a, a different job. They're helping us with our pest control as long as we leave them alone to do their job. Well, people tend to be very nervous about wasps, but um, let me tell you, wasps can, wasps can be very, very effective predators on pests. Uh, incredibly so, and um, so really planting things that attract uh, diversity of insects, really important. So I'll, I'll just mention one, um, one genus, the Pycnanthemum uh, plants. Uh, mountain mints are amazingly good at attracting a wide array of beneficial insects, including wasps. Now, if you plant Pycnanthemum, and there are all sorts of species, Muticum, Virginianum, Tenuifolium, all these different mountain mints with different um, flower shapes and sizes, you will see an incredible array of insects that you might not have ever seen before. Why is this good? Particularly if you're, you're gardening in, in a, with a vegetable garden. You want to bring in uh, nature's predators to help you keep your pest population down so you don't have to do the sprays. So, again, thinking differently about how you're gardening. We're going to have to take a little break real soon. But when we come back, I'd like to talk about, you mentioned the blueberries, but a lot of people don't know how many other things there are that they can be planting in their yard that's good for both our pollinators and for the rest of the wildlife and for us, too. We'll be right back after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is Tracy Pearson with Prissy Tomboy. Listen to the Prissy Tomboy radio show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time as I interview special guests that will inspire adventure and fitness for females. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest this week is Kim Ironman, and she is an expert in all things native. And right before the break, we were talking a little bit about blueberries that are so well-pollinated by one of our native bumblebees and how good some of the bumbles and wasps are at pest control. But what other things can people plant for um for the wildlife and for themselves too, mm-hmm. we can. We've got not just trees and and like and, and berry bushes, but we have things like herbs too, don't we? 
We have lots of different things. And um, one thing I would just comment on, um, I alluded to this before, is think about having some structure around your vegetable garden. And think about incorporating some things that exist, you know, kind of through through the seasons. And um, some smaller trees and shrubs that are berry-producing or nut-producing um, would be a good way to start. And they do more than just provide a bounty for you in nature. Um, they also will be really great at um, water retention with those stormwater events that we're talking about. Because once you've, um, you know, you've actually harvested your annual vegetables, you know, what's left, right, in terms of holding the soil. So um, one of my favorite uh, smaller native trees that uh, produces delicious fruit is the service berry, also known as June berries. It's the Amelanchier group, and there are many different types of, types of Amelanchier of service berries. Um, there's some that get to be 40 feet tall, um, and there's some shorter ones um, like uh, Amelanchier canadensis, um, Shadbushes, uh, one of its common names, and um, even the Amelanchier stolonifera, which is a running service berry, which is more of a shrub. Now, I am fortunate. Here I am in New York at the end of April, and my service berries are in full bloom. And they're beautiful. They have um, white flowers that are very uh, delicate looking. They hold on for, you know, less than two weeks, I would say, providing some nectar and pollen for pollinating insects. And then you get rewarded with this delicious fruit that tends to be kind of a dark red to bluish black that is absolutely delectable, and you can pick right off the trees and enjoy on your cereal with a little milk. You don't need any sugar because they're inherently sweet. You can make a pie with these. You can make a jam with these. And you need to share a few with nature, too, because... (laughs) Share a few? (laughs) Share a few. They need to to share with me. I love service berries. (laughs) And... They they will come through and strip it. I'll get a couple of berries off. And I keep telling them, you know, you can have the ones up on the top where I can't reach, go. but leave me a few. Well, Especially flocks of cedar wax wings will come in. Yes. And, you know, they yes. travel in huge flocks, and yeah. and they will just come in and, zoom, it will be gone. Well, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the beauty of native plants. You know, I say plant it, and they will come. Um, where I live, now, you got to keep in mind, I'm 16 miles from midtown Manhattan on a fifth of an acre, and I have a little ecological, ecological oasis on my property. I did not see a single cedar waxwing until I planted service berries. They're absolute favorite fruit. Service berries fruit earlier than most of our plants, our native plants, and cedar waxwings absolutely adore it. So, um, yeah, plant some more, share with nature. <laughs> so that's a, that's a really good one. And some of our, um, some of our native plants are, are tastier off um, the plant than others. Um, another one that I really um, like to suggest, particularly if you have um, not such great soil and full sun, and these are particularly good at roadside uh, for roadside plantings. Is beach plum? Have you ever tasted beach plum, Prunus marina? I have tasted beach plum. I have not attempted to grow it because I think our soil is too heavy for us. For it, it. it may be you need you need soil that's not great. You need to have good drainage. So um, oftentimes, you know, by your driveway, roadside plantings where the soil isn't wonderful, um, you can um, plant it successfully. Um, but these. Um, 
these are wonderful little shrubs that have white blooms in the spring. The prunus um, uh, plants, any prunus is a fantastic pollinator plant, no matter what you pick, whether it's black cherry, prunus serotina, whether it's uh, choke cherry, uh, prunus virginiana, all these are fantastic um, plants for pollinators and, and fully edible to us, although um, those bigger plants you do need to, to um, spit out the seeds, don't eat the seeds. But um, they're, they're absolutely fantastic, and you can eat those little beech plums right off the uh, plant. Um, there are some other plants that aren't quite as tasty, like our chokeberries, but boy, are they healthful. And um, in Eastern Europe, they figured this out. Now, we used to call these plants, the botanical name was aronia, and now you'll see them typically referred to as photinia. So that would be black chokeberry, red chokeberry, purple chokeberry, um, that chokeberry family. In Europe, they call it the superfruit. The antioxidants in this fruit are just over the top. And uh, if you are fortunate enough to live in an area where you can go to an ethnic market, you might find aronia juice for sale. You can also buy it online. But why not grow these plants to support pollinators and make your own uh, choke, uh, chokeberry juice or, um, gosh, you could make jam or you could make um, a cordial, you could make wine. Um, it's going to need a little sugar, though, I'll warn you, but super, super healthful um, and something we don't even think about growing in our landscapes. Bring in the pollinators with these plants, and they will also uh, do you the uh, benefit of, of pollinating some of your vegetable um, plants as well. That's interesting to know. I, I've, I've grown aronia. Um, again, I, I didn't find them all that tasty, though. I did make jelly out of them a couple of times yeah. because, they, as, as you say, <laughs> they, they really need sugar. Um, they they are very astringent, uh, but yeah. they, the birds love them too, and I could use them yes, for a, to to kind of keep them away from some of my other earlier berries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and also, don't be afraid of using some um, smaller trees. Uh, some of our native trees are super tasty. You, you don't want to sheet out your vegetable garden, obviously, so, you know, place them accordingly. But um, our native pawpaw, Asimina triloba, you might have, um, might have tried. This is a really unusual um, smaller tree that looks incredibly tropical. Um, big leaves, this fruit, it's not the size of... Um, like a, a mango, they're much smaller than that, um, but they're, um, they've got that kind of look, and they have a banana mango-like flavor. Um, they bloom in the spring with these surreal maroon blossoms, and that's an indicator typically that the plant is pollinated by beetles or flies, which is interesting. We always think that uh, only bees are pollinators, but um, those wonderful blooms are followed by delicious fruit that um, you can eat um, raw, you can make um, a smoothie out of, you can make ice cream from it, and that plant's a larval host for the zebra swallowtail butterfly, as many of these plants are. So that's, um, that's a suggestion. The, the fruit will be maybe four to six inches long at most, and it matures in September, October. Um, it does need cross-pollination, so you need two you know, different genetic uh, individuals, genetically different individuals for, um, for proper cross-pollination. And they are, are also very tasty to possums, I discovered. The yes, possums they are. Love and them. Share <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Hair> with nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, so but one of the nice things is they do stay kind of small, and you can whack yeah. them back if you, if you need to, just like you can with elderberries. If yeah. they get too big, if they start shading it out, you can, you can yeah. whack it back. 
and pawpaw is clonal, so you will you will have a thicket if you um, um, let it go for long enough. You know, if you're there long enough, um, you will see a thicket forming, and they can actually take um, some shade. They won't flower and fruit as much in, in shade, but you'll often see see them in nature in shady conditions. But they're clonal, so I remember someone telling me that they planted um, pawpaw in an orchard and they ran amok. So you have to kind of know about the growth characteristics of a plant so you can put it in the proper location. I wonder if you could put a root barrier around it like they do for bamboo. Um, I guess you could, but I, I tend to like to let plants do what they want to do naturally, um, and that goes with pruning too. You know, let, let nature you know, run its course. Um, and you won't have um, you won't have problems with that. But um, planting a thicket of these things is just—it's absolutely beautiful, and they're very very disease resistant. So they're a wonderful tree for that um, reason as well. And another native tree you might consider, which is very tasty if ripe, <laughs> is our common persimmon, Diospyros virginiana. And there are, there are a couple different species of these throughout the United States. Um, these get to be bigger, but they um, don't have much um, lower branching. So you can actually plant them in areas where there are things fairly close to it, and they have a beautiful checkerboard-like bark. Uh, they can get up to, you know, 30 to 40, 50 feet high sometimes. Um, they bloom in the uh, late spring or early summer, pollinated by a lot of different types of bees. Um, they're usually dioecious, male and female plants, so know that when you go to buy them. You're going to need a male and a female. The fruit only occurs on the uh, female plants. That's part of the secret of native gardening, by the way. And then the fruit is about an inch or two in diameter, and it matures in September. Make sure it's ripe, because it's really <laughs> astringent if it's not ripe. And it, it should be almost mushy when you eat it. And you're, you're going to enjoy it as well as the birds and um, some, some mammals that might get a hold of them, too. But that's absolutely delicious, um, eaten ripe um, or, again, in preparations that you might have in the kitchen. Yeah, that's definitely one that you can fool your friends with or your enemy. Can't even unripe persimmon and tell them how good it is. <laughs> Talk about your pucker factor. <laughs> Be very, very astringent. You know, yes. you, you've reminded me of a couple of plants that I no longer have in my landscape. I, like you, I tend to leave things alone, both because I, you know, because I like to look and see what happens, and because I think Mother Nature has been doing this a lot longer than I have. And I, I just realized, listening to you, that I've, you know, I haven't seen that, this plant in a while, or I haven't seen the persimmon, or I haven't yes. seen the pawpaw, and, and now I know why, you know, because I've gotten shaded out. I'm just looking out my office window here and seeing the maple trees that were about 30 feet tall when we moved here, or maybe not even that, and they're now 60 feet tall and over 100 years old. And I say, well, yeah, that's what happens with them. And it's, it's really tough to ask a gardener to plant for mature size. <laughs> but we, we always, I make this mistake myself, planting things too closely, and then i got to move them. My husband keeps asking me when I'm going to be finished gardening. And the answer is never, because you're always moving stuff around. You're always changing things. And sometimes in small landscapes, you're hoping that something actually doesn't make it, and it dies, so you can replace it with something else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolutely. I've been waiting for some crepe myrtles to die. I kept kind of hoping that the Asian ambrosia beetle would get them because they are messy in four seasons. Mm -hmm. um, but the Asian ambrosia beetles are getting my fig instead. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, well. That is, that is a shame. <laughs> but yes, I... Uh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. 
you mentioned another plant that we uh, we used to plant um, generations ago, and, and we've kind of forgotten about it. Is our common elderberry, Sambucus canadensis, and that's that's a fantastic plant. Um, likes wetter sites, moist uh, soil to wet soil. You know, up here in the Northeast, I can get away with planting an average garden soil because it doesn't get um, you know too too hot. But um, that's, a, that's a beautiful plant with um, lovely flowers that um, will attract some pollinators. It's not a top pollinator plant, but it will attract some pollinators. And then, of course, you wind up with this incredible, luscious head of uh, many, many tiny little berries um, that are best eaten, um, not ripe um, off the plant, but best eaten in things like elderberry pie, you know, elderberry wine. In the southeast, I've heard that you folks um, will actually take the flower heads, the elder flowers, and batter them up, deep fry them, and put powdered sugar on them. Have you ever had that? I have not had that. Elderflower um, fritters. It's interesting. My neighbor used to, used to collect my elderberries. Um, and for me, I don't remember her ever getting the, the flowers, though. We're going to have to take a little break right here, but when we come back, we'll talk more about edible gardening. We'll be right back. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Kim Ironman, founder of Eco Beneficial, and we're talking about edible landscapes with native plants that we can enjoy and the wildlife can enjoy too. And right before the break, we were talking about elderberries. And Kim, you said that elderberry needed a lot of moisture, and that may be why it does. Yeah, that may be why it does so good in our clay soil. But I never ever water. Yeah. Out there, I, yeah. I save water for my containers and for my vegetables, mm-hmm. and that it, it's an area near a big old southern magnolia. And again, and it was one of these bird planted things. I love yeah. to have bird planted things. And then I've got some more in what used to be my vegetable garden, and that's better soil. But I, I think right. they're probably more forgiving. Well, they're they're pretty easy to grow, but you you've made a really interesting point about the watering. Um, <clears throat> a lot of folks assume that if a plant is native, it doesn't need any care after planting. <clears throat> now, while native plants are low maintenance, they are not no maintenance. Any plant that you plant in the first growing season needs care. So, if Mother Nature isn't delivering that irrigation, you need to. Um, native or not, so just kind of keep that in mind. But of course, planting the right plant in the right place is going to be super important um, for success. So, um, you know, elderberries uh, are pretty forgiving. Some plants are more forgiving than others. Um, sometimes it astounds me how things pop up that um, shouldn't be in certain places. Um, our, we have a lot of native violets that typically you'll see in a woodland setting, but I often see them popping up in full sun in my landscape. 
and um, most of our native violets are quite tasty, um, both the flowers um, and young leaves. And that's something that um, we don't really think about. We can certainly um, be incorporating violets in our landscape, not only for a, a beautiful show, but also because they are host plants for fritillary butterfly caterpillars. So, again, I didn't of, know that. Yeah, thinking about um, what a plant is doing, its ecological function, in addition to its aesthetic purpose or its edible purpose for us, super important. Yep, yep. And, um, I have a lot of golf fruits around, um, but yeah. I did not know that they yeah. were over there. I, I, wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. I love the violets, and, but I've got a small story. A friend of mine was hosting a very elegant luncheon, and she had collected a lot of flowers, um, and including some, some violets, but some nasturtiums and some other things, too. And she had prepared them the day before, thought she had them all washed, and then had the salad sitting out while the rest of the meeting was going on and came back to find out that some of the, the little critters were walking across the plates. Oh, my gosh. That's great. That's wonderful. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. There were, there were just some aphids out there, but it, it's, um, it's kind of funny. You do need to wash your vegetables, even if they're native. So what else, what else is out there that people can be planting and eating? And you know, well, is there um, stuff for all over the country? And we have listeners out in California and out in the desert southwest. Many of these um, plants um, have a species that will be indigenous to your area, not all of them. So, you know, I always suggest to folks that they plant regional native plants. This is the best practice. Why? Because our creatures, including our pollinators, have evolved with plants that are local. So what do you do to get those lists? Well, one great step is you join your local native plant society. And uh, virtually every state, not every single one, but almost every single state has a, um, has a native plant society. And you can get a lot of help um, with getting plant lists either online or, um, you know, uh, sometimes hard copies might be available to you as well. So that, um, you know, that is, uh, that's a, a great step. But plant locally, regionally native plants. Now, in the southeast one that, um, that you have that doesn't do so well for me, for example, in the northeast, would be uh, passionflower. Maypop, that's passionflower mm-hmm. incarnata, which is a, an herbaceous vine. And um, those blooms in the summer are absolutely otherworldly. They're absolutely gorgeous. They're pollinated by bees. Again, this is a plant that needs cross-pollination with a genetically different individual plant. So you're going to have two plants that are genetically different. But you need that cross-pollination for a good fruit set. And the fruit brightens in the, in the fall. And um, as you squeeze those little uh, balls of fruit, you know, it actually creates that popping sound. And you eat the gelatinous um, flesh that's inside. Have you ever tried a maypop? Yes, I have, I, and I have them growing in my in my garden because again the birds the birds or, or some critter brought them in, and I okay. let them grow to see what they are. And the flowers are absolutely gorgeous. I'll see if I have a picture of it and put it up on the America's Homegrown Veggie Facebook page for people to see. Because if you can grow them, they're well worth it. Yeah. And that's another plant that's a host plant for I know at least six different native butterflies, including the uh, Gulf Fritillary. So, and that's uh, why I see the Gulf fruits yeah. most all the time, and they're, yes. they're wonderful orange caterpillars, and the mm-hmm. butterflies are great, too. So oftentimes I'll say to folks, find the beauty in ecological function. It's not just how a plant looks. 
It's what a plant does. And some of these plants are multiple-duty workhorses, some of our natives. So think about that, especially in smaller landscapes where you don't have a lot of room. You want to think about those ecological workhorses that do a lot. Now, when people are planting, they should, especially if they're planting for birds, they should be aware to plant in certain ways, too, shouldn't they? So the birds have places to perch and places to raise their young? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, bird gardening is, um, you can kind of boil it down to four simple principles. I call it the big four. They need nesting and cover, right? They need food sources. Um, they need a um, water source, right? And um, nesting cover, habitat, you know, all these things are, are the basics of a successful bird garden. But different bird species choose to use different layers of our landscape. And we don't always think about planting in layers. So some birds might prefer to be low to the ground, right? And some birds mm-hmm. like to be in their shrub layer. And some birds prefer um, these understory trees. And some prefer tall canopy trees. So thinking about planting in layers for birds is, is super important. But um, and in, in areas of the country that get cold in the wintertime, um, thinking about having some evergreen material where birds can find cover in winter is super important as well. And we've got, you know, a number of native evergreens that will uh, do that job. But, um, you know, learning to share our bounty from our garden, you know, with these native plants, with birds, I think is an important lesson, not only for us as, a, as adult gardeners, but for kids as well. And it's a way to get the kids engaged in uh, backyard gardening. And uh, unfortunately, we've got a lot of competition with electronics, <laughs> right, computers and smartphones and all that. So we need to get kids engaged and teach them these lessons about how that bumblebee um, pollinates the uh, flowers of a blueberry plant, right, and how those flowers then are followed by fruit that we can eat we can share with nature, and why that's a better choice in the garden if we want beautiful fall color than uh, something like um, Euonymus elatus, a uh, burning bush that's often used for color in the garden. So getting kids engaged with this um, and sharing with nature is, is a really important step. And when you catch them young, they're so interested in everything. I had mm-hmm. our neighborhood kids would always come over and see what was new in my garden because they had a typical, you know, suburban-type landscape, or well, actually more mm-hmm. rural landscape, and I was planting all these fun things, you know, the fruits and the trees and, and of course, the vegetables, but also to watch the critters. And one of the things that I find fascinating is how people can perceive, say, a a bunch of caterpillars eating their oak trees as a threat or either cherry trees or something like that. Mm -hmm. But then you see a flock of birds come in, and in less than a day, all of those Mm -hmm. caterpillars are gone. Yes, That's fun. Yeah, that is fun. And, um, you know, nature is not always kind, (laughs) you know, but we live in food webs where... Things eat other things, and it's a big cycle of nature. Um, I've had that exact experience where, you know, you have a really tremendous number. I remember seeing like 30 eastern swallowtail uh, uh, caterpillars um, in my landscape. I counted them out, and the next day, nothing. Nothing, yep. because the birds had eat, eaten them. So it's that balance of nature that we need to achieve. And uh, planting more uh, native perennials is going to be part of that balance in terms of bringing in, you know, our, um, 
you know, our, our predator insects. And um, one of my favorite plants, I'll just, yeah, there's so many different um, perennials that we can embrace, but um, I, I absolutely love uh, anise hyssop, um, which is Agastache funiculum. Um, a wonderful pollinator plant with um, purpley spike flowers. It's absolutely beautiful for pollinators. But here's the thing. You can actually use the leaves of that plant to make a tea, so plant extra. And that tea is absolutely delicious. I mean, it will rival any fantastic, expensive tea that you can buy in a store. It's and very helpful as well. And we have a lot of these plants that have been used um, either as food or medicinally by Native Americans and colonists for many, many years. Um, and I will say that if you decide to um, grow things like that, do your research. If you're going to be a backyard forager, do your research so you know which plant parts of the plants are edible, when it's edible, so you're not making a mistake. Um, pokeweed um, is a plant, the pokeweed salad, you've probably heard of that. You can actually still sure. buy that. You know, buy that in the can now, but you've got to get that plant when it's really, really little. Otherwise, it's toxic. So, and you've got to change the water several exactly, times when you're cooking. Exactly, and that's the case with many of these plants. So, if you're going to be a backyard forager, know the plant um, before you eat it. I would really encourage that. Where can people find out more of this information? We've only got a couple of minutes left. So sure. What would you recommend? Well, um, there are so many wonderful um, books that exist. Um, again, join your native plant society. There'll be a lot of information there. I have some information on my own website, ecobeneficial.com, about uh, edibles. Lots of good books. Uh, Lee Reich happens to be a very good um, uh, author. Um, he's written a book called Uncommon Fruits for Every Garden. I really like that book. Um, he includes exotic plants, too, but it's a good book for natives, um, some of our natives. Uh, Ellen Zaklos's book, Backyard Foraging, is a good book. There are many. And um, if you're interested in ethnobotany, you know, get some of these books that address um, Native American uses of plants, um, which is absolutely a fascinating topic. Many of them are, are quite helpful and um, very interesting things to use uh, in your kitchen. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. And you also have, besides ecobeneficial.com, you have a blog and Facebook yes, page, that's right? Yes, that, that my blog is on my website. I've got a Facebook page, Twitter account, you know, full full on social media. I do video interviews with uh, folks that I think are interesting, doing interesting things, like, you know, for example, Doug Tallamy. I recently interviewed some organic um, farmers in Vermont who are growing uh, fruits and vegetables organically. Um, I think that's really interesting, probably, for your audience. Um, one talking oh. very clearly about pollinators and how he grows all of his fruit crops without a single drop of pesticides and relies upon our native bees and um, to do pollination services. Services. Even with plants like tomatoes that don't require um, animal pollination, benefit from cross-pollination from our bumblebees. Well, and just the buzz pollination will, will release the pollen inside the flower, right. which is especially important down here in the hot and humid south, where yes. on a really bad day, we, it just may not spread around enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This has been right absolutely right. fascinating, Kim. I, can can we get you back on again sometime? I know you're busy as all get out. It would be my pleasure. That would be wonderful. And you're, are you still on the speaking tour? Where can people find out about where I, you're going to be? Is that on your on, website? On my, web, on my website, I have places that I'm uh, going to be speaking. I do a lot of teaching in the tri-state area, 
And if you're interested in the speaker, get in touch with me. And if you have questions about anything we've talked about today, I'm really good about answering emails, and please feel free to send me an email. That's great. Thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have for this week, but we'll be back with America's Homegrown Veggies next week. I hope you'll be with us. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.